Thank you for tuning into this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We're in a series right now called Foolish Things, a study in 1 Corinthians. Now in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul draws a sharp distinction between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. He tells us that Jesus' way looks like foolishness. Even though Paul wrote in the first century, the way of Jesus still seems foolish to many people today. So why should anyone follow it? Join us for this series and learn why being foolish is actually the wisest thing you can do. Once again, thanks for listening and feel free to check us out at tablechurchdsn.org. Table Church. Today we are going to read from 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and an usher will be happy to bring you one. And if you don't have one at home, um, please feel free to take this with you. So 1 Corinthians 18 through 27. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Amen. Thank you. That's Taryn Obink. She's one of our directors of mission here at Table Church. Taryn, uh, she helped organize our dollar car wash yesterday. And thank you to everyone who came to help uh, get sunburned with us. Um, It was a lot of fun and and we washed a lot of cars and we were able to bless a lot of people. In case you don't know, we we advertise a dollar car wash. And when people pull in, we wash their car. And at the end, we give them a dollar instead of taking a dollar. And uh, it's just really fun to see the smile that, that puts on people faces, people's faces sometimes. And then Taryn's also helping me lead a missions trip to Zambia this month. We leave here in a few days, a couple weeks, I think, on the 21st. Uh, so yeah, it's a busy month here around Table Church, but I'm excited for all the things that God is doing. Hey, if you're new here today, we're so glad that you've come. And uh, we hope that you have felt right at home today. In fact, be sure to grab a gift on your way out up there at the Welcome Center. Megan and I will be up there to say hello. So we're just glad that you came. So in my office, um, right above my desk, there is a painting that was given to me by a coworker uh, at my former church as we were leaving. And I think we have a picture of it here. If you ever zoom with me, you'll see this. <laughs> it's hanging above my head. And you know, if you're watching me on a zoom call. Um, so she and her husband, who was my boss, he was the lead pastor of my church. We worked closely together for a number of years. They had it kind of commissioned by an artist in that church uh, as a parting gift to me as we were coming to Des Moines to plant Table Church. And um, so they're dear friends of ours, and so they know me really well, and so they knew what my favorite Bible verse is. I don't know if you could make it out of the picture or not, but my favorite Bible verse, if people ask me, I mean, it's hard to choose just one, right? Uh, But ever since I was in high school, I've always answered 1 Corinthians 1.18, which you just heard read. 
It's for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I want to unpack a little bit today why I think that's such an earth-shaking verse. See, our faith is not like the landscaping around your house. Your faith is not there just to kind of make things look a little prettier and nicer. And Christianity is not supposed to be like another pizza topping just to give a little spice or flavor to your life. No, the message of the cross, this faith that we profess, it is there to completely turn your life upside down. It should leave no corner of your life untouched, no rock unturned. It is to affect everything in your life. The early followers of Jesus that uh, believed that this message of the cross, they said that it would, comp- it would appear as complete nonsense to the world. Paul here calls it foolishness. The word in the Greek for foolishness is the word moria. It sounds like moron. The message of the cross is moronic, he says, for those who are perishing. To the world, it looks moronic. Now, people in ancient Corinth, they loved the art of rhetoric. They loved their their orators, the people who could speak and turn a phrase, the philosophers, the debaters, the wise men, that kind of thing. And so, in fact, these guys were, I mean, they were like their NFL stars. Like, they would gather around in the city square in order to watch somebody just, like, speak, like, give a speech or debate somebody or something like that. And so it was a place that was obsessed with its philosophers, with wisdom, they prided themselves on these things, and Paul knows this, so he's kind of drawing on this, this cultural insight as he writes this passage. He knows that they love wisdom, they pride themselves on their philosophy. For them, the worst thing in the world would be to appear foolish. But guess what Paul says? Hate to break it to you. Your faith is going to make you look like a fool to others. You will get laughed at and dismissed and humiliated. There is no honor to be found here, at least not by worldly standards, he says. For Paul, the message of the cross is that the God of the cosmos, the God who made everything, died a shameful death on a cross at the hands of his enemies. Nothing could be more shameful than that. The Romans had spent a lot of time perfecting the art of killing somebody. Now, Crucifixion was effective not simply as a painful and long and belabored way to die. It was also perfected as a way to shame that person as they died. You're literally nailed naked to a cross and then put up on a busy street like a billboard. They knew exactly what they were doing as they designed and crafted this method of torture. Nothing could be more shameful than that. So the idea that a god would willingly submit himself to that is moronic. And foolishness isn't the only word that Paul uses to describe the gospel. He says in verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Stumbling block here, it's actually one word in the Greek, the word scandalon. Scandal. What's a scandal? Elsewhere in the Bible, scandal is described as something like a trap or something that you find repulsive or offensive. And so Paul's saying that, look, by the rationality of the world, Your faith, it's not simply that they don't understand it. It's not just that it doesn't make sense. They're saying, he's saying they find it repulsive, offensive. It's not just a neutral thing. Well, those Christians are kind of weird. No, they're saying those Christians are immoral. They are wrong. How could they blaspheme God 
and say that he would do such a thing like that. This is, I'm, hope, I'm trying to draw out just like the extremity of this language. Paul goes on and on about this in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. Look, the message of the cross is the fact that God would choose to die a sinner's death. And not only that, he would do it for his enemies in order to redeem them. That's utter nonsense. There's no honor in that, according to the way of the world at the time. But, Paul says, says, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice he does not say to us who are saved. The words are present continuous. To us who are being saved. This foolishness of a God who would let himself be killed is a continual source of power to us who follow after him. It is continually remaking us and reshaping us and restoring us, Paul says. And then Paul turns the tables. He says, look, not only is your faith foolishness to them, but guess what? As a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, you look out at the world and you say, you know what? Actually, no, that's the foolishness. God's wisdom looks like foolishness in them, but once you have the mind of Christ, then you start to realize how foolish your former ways were. What's so significant about this message of Christ crucified? Richard Hayes, Bible scholar, he says, the crucifixion is the revelation of the deepest truth about the character of God. The crucifixion is the revelation of the deepest truth about the character of God. In other words, nothing tells us more about who God is than Christ on the cross. You want to, you want to know at his core, who, what's God like? Look at Christ on the cross. That'll tell you. That'll tell you. A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's on page one of Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, what does that mean? How could that be true? Well, think about this. As a Christian, you believe that God is, well, Jesus dying on the cross. That's one of the things that comes into our minds when we think about God. And if, if that's true, if that's who God really is, well, that has implications for how we live. Because the cross is not just something that happened. The cross is a model for how we live our life. The cross demonstrates to us what's actually at the core of reality. I like to say how the grain of the universe runs. We spend most of our lives trying to run against the grain, you know? We're sinful creatures, and we, and we come and we try to move the opposite way as though, like we think that that's the way things ought to be. But no, God on the cross says, look, this is actually the way it is. The world is made to operate off of selfless love, and I am demonstrating that to you here. So as a Christian, that's what we think of when we think about God. But, you know, there's other people that think about God, and they think, I mean, about a God who's distant and far off, but sprinkles some fairy dust on their lives whenever they need it. You know, like that affects how you live too, doesn't it? And then there's, you know, a materialist perhaps who doesn't believe in God. Well, that's going to affect your understanding of how life should be lived and where true genuine meaning and purpose come from. So what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, he says. Look, if you follow Jesus' teachings, it will eventually lead you to do things that seem foolish. It teaches us, for example, not to worship money. And look, I know people here in this room, you, you, you work at a place, that doesn't make sense to the people around you. Why would you ever purposefully decide to do something that will yield less money in your life? It's foolishness. Um, 
Here's one. Our faith teaches us the value of life. It says that we're all created in the image of God. And, and um, we say things like, you know, a human life is of infinite worth. Well, as I checked, infinite never runs out. Which means that as a Christian, like, we have this view that life is of infinite worth, whether it's in the womb or it's in a prison cell. Like, that's going to get you in trouble on either end, you know what I mean? Like, that's going to look like foolishness. We believe that every life is of infinite dignity and value. Well, there's people who like to put a cap on it at some point. I mean, in different places and in different ways, but if you hold that consistently, you're going to look like a fool to somebody. We teach an ethics of sexuality that seems out of fashion at best, oppressive at worst. You know, we teach you to give up what's rightfully yours for the sake of those in need. This faith teaches you to give part of your hard-earned money to the poor. All these things are going to look foolish at some point. So Paul is telling us that this message of the cross, though, is nothing short of the power of God to heal the world. The cross may seem foolish, but it is the only hope of healing our world. I recently did a wedding for a friend in high school. I haven't seen him in 20 years. And uh, it was a real privilege to do the wedding. And I got to see not only him uh, meet his now wife, uh, but also got to see a handful of old friends from high school that I hadn't seen in 20 years either. And, um, you know, I'm a little balder now and whatever. But it was fun, right? You get together, it's like everyone's changed, but it's cool to catch up and hear what everybody's doing. Um, so we're standing in a circle after the, after the reception, or after the wedding, during the reception, just kind of sharing about our lives, you know. So this guy, he he's works for an airline, flies all over the world, sees, sees some really incredible things. This guy works in uh, higher education. Uh, this guy is a man in management at Rockwell Collins, the big aerospace engineering firm in Cedar Rapids. Uh, this girl, she manages a department at the University of Iowa. And then she turns to me and she says, Phil, what do you do? I say, well, I'm a pastor. And she says, oh, that's cool. And I said, yeah, I just did the wedding you were at. Did you, did you not see that? And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't notice. And then the rest of the night was apologizing every time somebody swore, you know, like every time somebody swore, oh, sorry, sorry. That's how it went. Because look, it's like foolishness. You know, like being a pastor is this interesting little quirk about me, like I'm from another culture, you know. Oh, interesting. Tell me about this interesting culture that you come from, right? Like, it's just weird. Like, who would do that? Why would you do that? But that's increasingly the way it is to be a Christian in culture, I think, anymore. Tim Keller puts it in even stronger terms. He says, we are entering a new era in which in many places in the West, there's not only social benefit to being a Christian, I'm sorry, there's not only no social benefit to being a Christian, but an actual social cost to espousing faith. I don't know if you feel that in the workplace sometimes or not, but I think that there might be some truth there. And if there is any truth there, then I think it's worth asking the question, well, why would I want to follow Jesus then? If that's true, there's nothing really to gain socially from this. Why would I want to follow Jesus? 
And there's a lot of ways to answer that. I mean, I believe the most compelling reason is Jesus himself. Like, I want you to encounter the person of Jesus and just to realize there's nobody like him, never has been, never will be. He's worth giving your life to. We all have to follow someone or something. I think Jesus is the best one. And not only that, but I believe he came back from the dead. And it's like, I don't know, just my, like my limited rationality says, I don't know, you follow that guy, you know? Whoever, he came back from the dead, there's something going on there. You should probably get in with that. But if I could give you some other reasons as to why I think you should follow Jesus, I'm just going to give you one today. Um, I could give lots, but maybe we'll do a series on it sometime. I don't know. But here's what I would want to say to the culture today in, in like the city of Des Moines, the community here. If I were to say, hey, here's why I think you should, you should give Jesus a shot or, or think about getting to know more about Jesus. Here's what I'd say. I'd say, look, the message of the cross has the compassionate ethic our culture wants but doesn't have the resources to achieve. I'll say it again. I know it's a mouthful. The message of the cross is the compassionate ethic our culture wants. You could even say the justice ethic that we want, but we don't have the resources to achieve. Here's what I mean. There's this deep ache in our hearts, widely in our culture today, and I celebrate this, but it's this this ache for a world of compassion, a world of equity, a world of justice, and we have a sense that the things that we see in the world are not how they ought to be, and that we have a role to play in making them better. This is something that many people you talk to today, whatever they believe about God, will agree with. This is not how it's always been, by the way. There has been many cultures and many times in history, in fact, most probably, that wouldn't say that that's the case. That's just their lot in life. It's fate. And actually, to kind of try to help people would disrupt the social fabric, and that would actually be bad for society, they would say. That's not how we think today. We have a widespread desire to fight injustice to lift up the marginalized. Well, the problem, though, is that secular culture doesn't necessarily know why that impulse is there or where it came from. Because, again, not everyone has thought this throughout history. And it has a, it has a hard time finding a basis for it, I think. If, I mean, if materialism is true, what basis do we have exactly for our ethics? Now, there's lots of books written by atheists about this, and there's actually quite a few, like How to Be Good Without God or Why Be Good Without God and stuff like that. There's all sorts of people that have thought deeply about that question. And um, There's a sociologist named Christian Smith who wrote a book trying to drill down to those reasons and actually surveyed the literature and, and tried to kind of deduce, okay, so what is the, the, some of the most common reasons uh, that people would say, if you don't believe in God, as far as like, why should we live lives of justice, compassion, and mercy? Uh, why not just try to, you know, get everything for yourself and stuff like that? And one prominent answer that he found was, um, well, because it makes us happy. It will make you happier if you live a life of benevolence and kindness and compassion and that kind of thing, uh, which is true. Uh, I think there's probably some psychological data to back that up somewhere. That, like, yeah, if you live a selfless life, well, you think about yourself less, so you probably worry about your problems less, and it works out in the long run for you. So I think that's true. But here's the problem. Sometimes it's not true. Sometimes doing the right thing, the kind thing, the just thing requires much of you, more than you want to give. So what about then? What about when it's genuinely hard and requires making big sacrifices over the long term that you may never get back? Do you have a reason for doing that? Does it built into your worldview of the way things actually are? What happens when the fun wears off? Philosopher Luke Ferry gives another reason why we should live lives of justice. He says that it gives us, this is a quote, 
a feeling of satisfaction and superiority. So his reason is that we should be just because then it makes us feel better than those that aren't. Look, to me that doesn't seem like enough. It's not a very compassionate reason to be compassionate. Another said, non-believer said, um, well, hey, the, the, the reason we should live lives of compassion is because, look, I know what it's like to be mistreated. I know what it's like to go without. I don't want that for anyone else. And so this atheist, he said, so we should treat others the way that we want to be treated. I don't know if he realizes the irony or not, but he's literally quoting Jesus here. You know? So like somewhere in his mental attic, like he's looking for reasons as to why we should live a life that looks like Jesus, and he may not know it, but he pulls on that thread, the teachings of Jesus, in order to establish it. And so what we have here is, it's just difficult to find a basis for this, this impulse and this desire that we have to see justice done in the world. It's hard to find a basis to draw it from. It's also hard to apply it coherently and consistently over a long period of time. And when you don't have that grounding, and we see this all the time when we affluent Westerners, right? We, we consume resources without abandon, okay? Uh, but then we put a yard sign out that signals our compassion and our desire for justice in the world. Like there's a disconnect there, you know? Or maybe tragedy strikes in culture and we, like we're just another shooting and you know, we're on the 4th of July again. Like we can't keep up anymore. And, and so we say together, we say, okay, enough is enough. It's time for something. It's time to do something. Enough thoughts and prayers. It's time for action. But then the farthest we ever go with action is that we post that on social media, not realizing that, I don't know, maybe the social media postings, the new thoughts and prayers, you know, like the useless thing that we do to try to assuage our guilt or to feel like we did something. And so we're stuck in this cycle. How long will it last? Look, the world tries to pursue justice out of strength, but the Christian pursues it out of weakness. What I mean is that the world, they say, okay, I see the benefits of it. I see the way that it might help me. Therefore, I should do it. But listen, we serve not because we have so much to give or gain. We serve because we've been given so much already. The cross has shown us how much we lack Central to our faith is this idea that, look, our sins were nailed to that cross. They're what holds Jesus on that cross. And once we know how much we lack, we can also know how much we've been given. And it is out of the, the continual and eternal overflow of what we've been given that we can also give. That God himself would take on flesh and die for our sins. That is the most compelling reason to pour yourself out for others. More compelling than anything else you could possibly imagine. That the God of the world did the exact same thing for you. Because remember, as Christians, we don't believe that that's something that simply that happened historically, which we do, but we don't think it's just that. We also see it as a model of how to live. It is ingrained in the center of reality. That is how the grain of the universe runs. You might say it like this. A Jesus follower knows that love is built into the fiber of reality. It's not just something we choose to do because we should. It's something that we do because it's how it is. God defines the way the world works, and this is how the world works. Tim Keller tells about a woman who did a lot of work researching people around the world where um, th these people who went into p difficult parts of the world and just you know, made huge sacrifices in order to help people. So we're talking about people who moved to the most dangerous places in the world, put themselves in harm's way, 
the high possibility of getting attacked or your family getting harmed or, um, or getting infected with a disease or something like that. People went into war zones to bring medical help. And so this woman would go interview these people to find, like, what compels you to do this? And what she found was that almost all the people who went into these places were highly religious people. Now, why is this? It's because there's a whole different worldview at work, a whole different idea of what constitutes reality here. For a Christian, it says, the things that look foolish to the world is actually wisdom to me. That these things are actually power, the power of God for salvation. The message of the cross says that your life should be defined by what the Bible calls agape love. That's the deepest, most profound kind of love that there is. And so look, as a Christian, you can put out a yard sign, but just so you know, your faith says, hey, not enough. That's not enough. It pulls you further and further in continually for your whole life. It says, look, if you're concerned for the lives of students, then what at-risk students have you been with this week? If you're concerned for refugees, how many of them do you know? If it's pregnant mothers, then how have you supported them? If it's vulnerable children, have you considered fostering or adoption? And so here's what I think we're learning about life. Look, we want the comfort that comes with serving ourselves, but we need the purpose that comes with dying to ourselves. This is very difficult to disciple ourselves into, isn't it? Well, we can't disciple ourselves into it. This is difficult to allow God to disciple us into. That I have this vision of what the good life must be, and it usually involves getting or attaining or something like that. But you know what? True purpose comes from dying to myself. That's what the gospel teaches, and that's what seems so foolish. Here's what's amazing about the gospel. It comes not for those who think they know, and not for those who think they're strong. The gospel comes for those who know that they lack. Those who know that they're weak. That's who the gospel comes for. So let me ask you this, Table Church, can you handle that truth? Can you handle the fact that the gospel comes for those who have set down their pride, who have truly recognized that they have nothing to offer to God? God might be calling you into a deeper level of, of cross-centered foolishness today. To let something go for him, a sin, a stronghold, a area of greed, I don't know. He might be calling you, hey, it's time for you to nail that to the cross. It's time for you to look a little foolish. And so my challenge for you today is to believe that, that letting go of that thing, even though it feels really, really hard to pry your fingers off from around it, that, that feels like a loss in the moment, but it's not. It's not a loss. It's actually a win. Remember, the Bible calls Satan an angel of light. It's beautiful. It looks compelling and attractive. It looks like that's where I need to go. And then God, how does he present himself? He presents himself as a beaten, broken, and bleeding man on a cross. Repulsive, disgusting, nothing that anyone would want to have anything to do with. And so we must choose wisely, my friends. Because at the center of the universe is this, the way of Jesus. So we got to stop following this script that says, I'm, you know, I got to go to the light. I got to, because that might turn out to be a bug zapper. You know what I mean? 
says, I gotta accomplish this, I gotta look this way, I gotta have this house, drive this car, fit this mold, be you know, this, this cool or whatever, have that job, get that promotion. Instead, it, we're called just to look foolish sometimes. Look, I'm an ambitious person too. I, and I think there's a, a place for that in the kingdom of God. As long as your ambition is for the Lord and for his ways and for his kingdom, how can you leverage the things that God has given you for the sake of others? That's the message of the cross. And that's how we live it out. Would you pray with me? Well, God, I pray for the courage to look more foolish today. Lord, I'm consumed with what others think. I'm consumed with not wanting to seem like I don't know or I not with it or whatever, God. Lord, I let that go. I let it go. I give it to you. Lord, may we do the same. There's only one thing worth the pursuing in this life above all else, and that is you. Everything else is a distant second. And so, Lord, if we're going to claim the name of Christian, help us to understand what a radical word that is. Paul was doing his best in these first three chapters of 1 Corinthians to help them understand it. It is nothing like what you would expect. It is foolishness. It is moronic. It is repulsive. It is a stumbling block. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Lord, if we believe that, then may we take hold of it today. Lord, I realize that this, this, these passages and sermons like this, um, sometimes Christians can use this to justify culture wars, to say, yeah, the world is foolish. They don't know anything. Lord, that's the opposite of the way of the cross. The way the cross says that we have been given the words of life, what do I have to do in order to help others to have it too? In order to help others hear it, know it, understand it. Maybe the first thing I can do is I gotta love them and stop judging them. And so Lord, forgive us, forgive me for that reaction, that impulse in us. And when we do that, Lord, that's just the wisdom of the world. It's, it's, not, even, it's not even Christianity. And so Lord Jesus, would you... Um, reshape us. Would you just crush us for your word and for your truth and for your love that we might be a people that can truly change the shape of this community. We love you, God, in your name. Amen.